0: As psalms of ascent we have dealt with repeatedly. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a pretty fair consensus um, that that, it, that is uh, a reasonable and well-held, broadly held consensus that these psalms were associated with pilgrimages uh, to the temple in Israel. Now, we have to be cautious about that because We talked about this the very night we introduced the series. Why can they not have originated as processional hymns to be sung as we approach the temple? Why can they not have originated as that? Because they cannot have originated as that. There's no temple. The majority of them were written by David, and David never saw the first permanent temple. Um, that That was reconstructed by Solomon. After, after God God told David, <laughs> by the way, I was, I was looking at my Bible this morning. I just have this on my heart. Um, 2 Samuel 7 is the passage, the chapter, where God tells David no to David's notion that he's going to build a temple. And in response to God's no, David offers one of the most beautiful thanksgiving prayers in the whole Bible in response to God's no. It is a breathtaking chapter. So if you haven't gone by there lately, 2 Samuel 7, that was free. If you're, if you're at our wings luncheon tomorrow, that's what I'll be, I'll be sharing from. Um, all right, before we look at Psalm 131, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little theological context as well. The more complicated you make what I'm about to say, the greater danger that you're going to veer into the woods. So I'm going to make a very simple statement. This statement should not have a bunch of footnotes after it. This statement raises enormous questions for us. And those questions are are fair. What is the statement? God is in charge of absolutely everything. Period. And you say, yeah, but, no, I told you, it raises a ton of questions. And much of Christian theology is concerned with, wow, that raises questions. And and you are not wrong to observe and acknowledge that that raises questions. What it doesn't have is a bunch of footnotes. God is in charge of everything, however, this, however that, however the other, however be be careful, be careful, because much of what is is to be treasured. In, in Psalm 131 and myriad other texts that deal with having a calm and quiet soul is much of, of realizing that glorious benefit is predicated upon a God who is not making it up as he goes, a God who's not reacting to secondary causes all the time. I quote it often because it's such a shorthand way of saying it. In Ephesians 1.11, and it's one of those things that I quote so often that that um, it's a good thing for me to occasionally tap the brakes. It's kind of like Romans 8.28. We throw around Romans 8.28 a lot. It's been way too long since we systematically did an exegesis of Romans 8, and perhaps that day will come, but Ephesians 1.11, I cite it all the time. Let's look at it for a moment together because it is not Paul's main point in in this sentence. This sentence is not about the utter providence of God, but he makes a sideways, it'd be like if I'm saying, by the way, y'all, I need to tell y'all something about Gail, who is my wife, blah, 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 and I went on. The the point is not to build an elaborate apologetic that Gail is my wife. The point is that you would know which Gail I'm talking about, the one who is my wife. Paul is talking about the living God and he wants you to know what, what is this living God he's talking about when he says in him we have obtained an inheritance. Having been predestined, don't don't let that word give you acid reflux. Keep reading. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Now if you love the all things of Romans 8:28, you better love the all things of Ephesians 1:11, cuz they are the same all things. So if you're gonna assert that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, who are the called according to his purpose, then you need to realize that those all things are not working themselves. Ephesians 1.11 makes a wonderful bookend pair with Romans (sighs) 8.28. Therefore, my circumstances. I um, was so blessed by uh, Brother David's message on Sunday. I shouldn't. I should not have this, but I do. I have in my um, in my various configurable news feeds. I um, I have a news feed that aggregates for me um, basically bad preaching wolf-ish preaching. And I uh, picked up a clip Sunday afternoon in that. It's kind of like the pool skimmer attachment on your, on your uh, if you have a pool that has a surface filter and the, that, that plastic basket, you know, you open the cover and you just never know what's going to be in there, right? That's what happens to me when I open that feed and go, okay, what has floated into the skimmer now? Guy did a whole message on the curses of pain and poverty. And if you are in pain and poverty, you are under a spiritual curse and Jesus wants to break that curse for you. And I just thought, man, I'm so glad that I sat in the congregation Sunday morning that heard quite precisely the opposite and heard a biblically sound message. Because the loony bin in my news feed was lying to people. I mean, I yelled anathema at my computer screen. I don't know if he heard it. (laughs) Because, see, if God is the author of everything, God is the author of my circumstances. Can secondary causes play a role? Of course! We live in a cause and effect world. No one can seriously discount the role of secondary causes. If you take your thumb and put it on a piece of wood, And you get a hammer and you're stupid and, not stupid, pardon me, you you have an ill-timed or ill-aimed hammer blow and you whack your thumb and your nail turns black and your thumb is in bad shape. You cannot merely, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Yeah, that's, all that's true, dude, but you did whack your thumb with a hammer. So I'm not discounting secondary matters, but the reason they're secondary matters is that they are not primary and ultimate. And the primary ultimate is the living God. And if you don't ground yourself in that, then to some degree, you're entertaining the notion of a God who to some degree is making it up as he goes. And not only should you not have a calm and quiet soul, you're probably not nearly as worried as you ought to be. If God is making it up as he goes, you ain't worried enough. But as God is the author, ultimately, of my context, if if I'm not parked in that, if I'm not parked in that in the present, it will show up as a persistent dissatisfaction. Sort of a lack of contentment. If we're to give thanks both for everything and in everything, I certainly can decide that my house needs painting because I am no longer satisfied with the exterior condition of my house. Therefore, I am dissatisfied with it. Therefore, my house needs painting. I'm not making an argument for being inert, right? I'm not making an argument for being, you know, zen. But if you are plagued by a profound dissatisfaction in the present tense, the opposite of the calm and quiet soul in Psalm 131.2, then you, you must consider that something is amiss, not merely in your external circumstances, but in your internal responses. Dissatisfaction in my present, paralyzing remorse about my past, Who in here's got stuff in their past they wish they wish they could change? If you're not raising your hand, you didn't understand the question. I mean, or you just you're comfortable and you don't want to raise your hand. Every one of us has 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 you know if you could if you could uh, borrow the DeLorean time machine, hop back there and make a tweak or two, you would. Of course we have, we have things in our past that we would sit here now based on the miles that we've gone and the lessons we've learned. Oh my, would I have handled that differently if I had a do-over. Every, and if you're a thinking adult in the room and you disagree with me, I do not mean to insult you when I assert that every thinking adult in the room has got stuff in their past that they wish they could airbrush a little bit, have handled a bit differently. But if you are dealing with paralyzing remorse regarding your past, this has happened to me in my past and I am not capable of of calmly proceeding forward in light of this, the problem is not what happened in your past. Because in that moment where whatever that was happened, happened, God had not relinquished his sovereignty in that moment. You say, yeah, but but, but that moment happened because of this, this is, okay, okay, we can catalog secondary causes all day long. I've been very careful to use the adverb ultimate or ultimately, the adjective ultimate, the adverb ultimately. If you've got a paralyzing remorse. I think, I think this psalm might help. All right, we've talked about dissatisfaction in the present. And this is all, by the way, this is all still context. <laughs> so you don't have to worry about me and uh, three verses. Because I'm a bear for context. I'm not going to show you a picture without making certain we've built a reasonably adequate frame. If you've got dissatisfaction in the present, and I don't just mean Hmm, I need to change batteries in my clock because my clock has stopped. Well, I hope you're dissatisfied and get some batteries and get your clock working again. But if you've got a, a profound dissatisfaction in the present, if you've got a paralyzing remorse regarding the past, or if you have worry regarding the future, simply, and you know this, you're Bible students. Worry is sin. Three-word sentence. No, no way you can avoid that conclusion. Well, it's just the way I am. What other, what other sin categories? Well, let's do that with pedophilia, shall we? Well, it's just the way I am. We'll lock you up and throw away the key. Arson. I, I You're an arsonist. Well, it's just the way I am. I like burning down buildings. <laughs> For some reason, we've decided that worry, which is as clearly prohibited as any other sin can be in scripture, we've decided somewhere that worry should get a pass, especially if it's, well, just the way I am. They all, the dissatisfaction in the future, the restlessness, chronic restlessness in the present, paralyzing remorse regarding the past, Undo anxiety. Uh, pa- Pastor Russell, I'm not I'm not a warrior. I'm just real concerned. <laughs> we do that too, right? The vocabulary shell game. Where if we if we can find a word for it that isn't the word the Bible uses, we can we can cause that it not be sin anymore. Um, that dissatisfaction, that paralyzing remorse, and that and that worry are all a lack of quiet in your soul. And in three verses. The Word of God is going to address some pretty important stuff about that. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother like a weaned child is my soul within me O Israel hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore there are three three negatives three knots three things I have not done one thing I have done that is the consequence of the three knots so let's look at how how those can be understood Verse one, first line, my heart is not lifted up. Roman numeral one, if you like an outline, curbed, C U R B E D, curbed ambition. Curbed ambition. My heart is not lifted up. Ambition is an interesting dynamic. It is, it is absolutely at full out idle status in our culture. If you're not driven in whatever area of life you desire to perform well, if you're not driven as an athlete, if you're not driven as a professional performer, if you're not driven as whatever, our, our, our society wants to really indict that. You know, be all you can be. No. I've, I've, I've counseled married couples for years, and particularly men, if, you're, if you have as a life goal to earn all the money you can possibly earn, you're going to make life hell for everybody who loves you. Because you're probably if you're getting paid to perform vocationally, there are going to be some hours of the week where you're doing very valuable things that you're not performing vocationally and therefore you're probably not getting paid. So if your life goal is to earn as much as you can, I want to to ask your wife and kids how worth it that is to them. Right? And it's it's not just that. It's it's every area of, of life where you have a heart that is lifted up. I'm gonna be best, I'm gonna be better, I'm gonna be uncurbed in my ambitions. I'm gonna give my ambitions absolute free reign. I know a being one time that gave his ambitions absolute free reign. He even said, I will be like the most high. How's that for uncurbed ambition? Who am I quoting? Satan. himself. Satan is the patron saint of people with, un- he's not a saint. He is, the, he is the patron spirit of uncurbed ambition. It's essentially what he offered Jesus in two thirds of the three classic temptations of Jesus. Right? The high performance outcome. James chapter four. Last paragraph. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. We will do that. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. By the way, who does know what tomorrow will bring? Okay, let's push it one more step. Who is the author of what tomorrow will bring? All right, you're on page. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Reign it in a bit. Curb your ambition. Unbridled ambition and a calm and quiet soul are fundamentally incompatible. Uncurbed ambition. <laughs> I, I, I live in a world of, of, of church mechanics. I can't help it. It's, it's been a big part of my waking life for a lot of years. And I've, I've learned to answer this question comfortably in the church world, and I've absolutely learned to answer it comfortably in my, in my own personal life are we doing all we can do? I usually just stop right there and say no. No. Of course we're not doing all we can do. I I sleep hours out of every 24. I read things simply because they're fun. I Walk my dogs. Nobody human is benefiting from that. The dogs are fond of it. I had someone ask um, back during the uh, pandemic crisis. And the question, the question is not, I don't mean to have a gotcha in my answer. I just think the question can sometimes be, Insufficiently thoughtful. The question was, we were talking about various approaches coming out of the pandemic, and someone asked me, Should not we do, shouldn't we do everything we possibly can to preserve life? And I said, are we shutting down I-75? <laughs> because people die on I-75 in Florida every day who would not die if we, if we shut down the interstates and make everybody drive at most 15 miles an hour, other than road rage, I would imagine we would save lives. So if we're going to do everything we can to preserve life, then we can't be hurtling around at 70 miles per hour plus in our vehicles. That is a deadly undertaking. So Are we doing everything we can? Go ahead and say no. No. Yeah, it's it's very liberating. (laughs) Because no, you're not. No, you're not. And whoever in the world told you you ought to be. Especially in the realm of restlessness and ambition and desire. There's always going to be a lane where you could do more than you ought to do. And I'm not arguing against achievement, and I'm not arguing against ambition, and I'm not arguing against Christ honoring striving. I am arguing for a quiet soul that says, this may well be as God has made it. And my obsessing may not be productive. Pastor Howard, you're just just speaking against excellence. Yeah, brace yourself, I kind of am. Because at least in my world, that term gets thrown around in ways that verge on the idolatrous. God himself is perfection. I don't think he's a fan of perfectionism. I tell my little couples in premarital counseling, it's going to be so fun on the day of the wedding when something goes really wrong. On the day of your, wait, we've planned this and it's all gonna be just perfect. I hope not. I hope, I hope that, I hope whatever's gonna go wrong, I hope it happens early in the ceremony so that everybody can go, okay, we just busted up the perfection idol. Now we can move forward with something that we can breathe through and enjoy. It's very liberating when you realize that the living God has a low tolerance. We build our little towers of Babel. We think we're going to do something that is, that is, you know, we're going to be like our version of be like the most high. And God says, nope, donk, you know, <laughs> curb, curb your ambition. Strive to honor Christ. But don't, don't be disquieted because of uncurbed ambition. I, my heart is not lifted up. Jesus said it like this. Having having food and clothing, be content with that. Be content with that. Roman numeral two. Controlled affection. Second line of this three verse psalm. My eyes are not raised too high. I I am not fixating my affection, my desires... On that which is not for me. I, I absolutely love. Hmm, I absolutely love when I put my uh, markers on place in my Bible so I can flip the things faster. I absolutely love 1 John uh, 2. Paragraph beginning at verse 15. Do not love the world. I was having a conversation earlier this evening about things that are simple but very, very hard. Do not love the world is an astonishingly simple directive. But goodness gracious, it's hard. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh. And the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The flesh speaks to your passions. The lust of the eyes speaks to possessions. I see it, I want it. Pride of life speaks to position. 1 John 2 16 is saying three things you got to really watch is being overly affectionate regarding your passions, your possessions, or your position. Um, By the way, when Satan tempted Jesus, hunger, um, shortcut to glory, and ultimate power and Prominence, passion, possessions, position—it's amazing. Once you, if you snap that little useful catechism piece into your brain, it is amazing how often it will pop out. Control the affection. I. Uh, it's, its funny how we sometimes we sometimes want to act as though our our desires are this animal that lives out here beside us that every now and then comes along and beats us up. As though we are not accountable for our desires. That we are not, we are not um, capable and accountable to police our loves. When that verse says don't love the world, the implication is you are driving what you do and don't love. You can't always Control what fleets by. Charles Spurgeon said, I cannot control what birds fly over my head. But I can control what birds build nests in my hair. That's a really good word picture of, of, okay, man, I I don't want to desire that. Well, then do what I just did. Shut it off and back away from it. Don't go Man, I know that's not for me, but holy cow, that's interesting. <laughs> that, that sort of unbridled affection, and it doesn't just have to be physical lust, lust of the flesh, it can also be, <laughs> I, um, I don't remember what I was reading. In addition to reading stupid stuff for fun, I do sometimes read thoughtful things. Now, I was reading about the rise, the rise of marketing-driven consumer culture. And basically, oversimplified but not wrong, it comes out of the Industrial Revolution. where Because for the first time in, in, in Western civilization, the Industrial Revolution gave our society the capacity to produce more than it needed to consume. And once you can produce more than you need to consume, I've got to convince you to participate economically in buying things based on something other than what you need. Present UAW strike notwithstanding, I can crank out a whole bunch more cars than possibly are the sum of all cars everybody needs. So i got to convince you that if your car is three or four years old, it's hopelessly obsolete. And you've really, has anybody ever traded or sold for the purpose, has anybody ever acquired a car they did not specifically need? You got rid of an old car and got a new one based on something other than actual need. Right styling, electronic gizmos, that's my Achilles heel with cars. I, my cars are, are I, I buy them like I buy a computer and the engines and the wheels and all that just come with it. It's the, it's the computers that make me uh, fascinated. Because, because we can produce way more cars than we need. So we live in a culture that the economy of which is driven by convincing us that we gotta have Stuff we don't need. So we swim uphill all the time. If we say, "I'm going to rein in the degree to which I, I love stuff," that's what that's what lust of the eyes is. I I I I saw that, and, and it's so pretty. I got to have it. I want it. And again, I'm not. Someone has said the definition of a materialist is someone who has more and nicer things than I do. That's everybody's working definition of materialist. Everybody's working definition of materialist is you have more and nicer things. If I walk everywhere I go, I am so humble and I'm practically ascetic. And you drive a bike, especially if it's a nice bike, you're a materialist. If I ride my bike everywhere I go because it's better for the planet and it keeps me in better shape, and you come zipping around me in your, what's a really inexpensive make and model car? What If I just wanted a car, but I don't have much money to spend. Yeah, okay, and I come zipping by, you come zipping by me in your Mitsubishi while I am on my bike. You are such a materialist. Right, And we can run that all the way up to if I, am, if I am tooling down the road in my Camaro and you zip past me in your Lamborghini, you're such a materialist. And if I've got my Lamborghini and you come on glide past me in your Rolls Royce silver shadow, you are such a materialist. And we do that. That's how we count. We know we're not materialists. No. But if you've got really nicer stuff than I do, you must be. Right. So we have to be careful how we how we label. But if you constantly are being bounced around. I'll tell you one indicator. And I'm not I'm not doing a survey and this is not a Dave Ramsey course. But if you're in chronic consumer debt because you have spent time now not being content. And you are you are literally digging yourself into a financial hole, spending money you don't have to buy things you don't need. How, how's how's the quiet how's the quiet spirit when the when the when the, the 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 day the credit card statement drops is a day you dread every month. How does that go with a quiet spirit, right? And it's not just stuff. It's it's it can be position. When the, when the promotion at work comes to somebody else and you know you deserve it, who is the ultimate author of who got that promotion? God. Might, in a secondary sense, might you have been more deserving? Oh, it's altogether probable. It's a fallen world and stuff goes wrong all the time. But if it's eating your lunch then there's something miscalibrated in your responses. You might be raising your eyes too high. Curbed ambition, controlled affection. And then the back half of verse one, contained attention. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Somebody asked me Monday, what are we going to do about this war in the Middle East? And I said, I'm not aware that I have any role in the war in the Middle East, so I suppose we aren't going to do anything. I'll pray. I don't work for the State Department. I don't work for the Pentagon. What are we going to do? I am... Whatever's going on over there, it is specifically too great and too marvelous for me. Therefore, I do not occupy myself with it. If you do occupy yourself with it, how are you doing on the calm and quiet soul? See how that works? The world is full, of, and, here, and, we, and we do it to ourselves. Every time somebody says, if you're not part of the answer, you're part of the problem. That's the dumbest thing in the world. The world is full of problems that I am not accountable to be part of the solution for. I bet when we get to the next Summer Olympics, there will be members of the US track team that will get beaten by people that are from countries that I don't like. The problem is they don't run fast enough. I don't know that I'm part of the solution. The world is full of problems. and I use a deliberately silly example. If you you buy the notion that if you're not part of the answer, you're part of the problem, how dare you sleep? How dare you sleep? as the world is full of problems you're not helping with. And I guess you're part of them. Man, try that with a quiet spirit. Try having a quiet spirit if that's your mindset. You'll be bonkers all the time. My my children, when we lived in Ocala, we, we had a, there was a terrific uh, public school that was halfway between the church, uh, First Baptist Ocala, where I was on staff for four years, and where our house was. Southern Elementary was on, our, was on my commute. And our boys were in that low, those lower elementary years during that time. They were a couple of grades apart. And the neat thing about Southern Elementary in, in Ocala is the principal was a member of First Baptist. Uh, most of the administrators were members of First Baptist, and a big chunk of the teachers remembers. The first. It was like a private Christian school that the state of Florida was paying for. And since the ACLU never heard of Ocala, Florida, the principal would come on the intercom every day and pray in Jesus' name at the start of every school day, and nobody, nobody said boo. And I'm not talking about the 1940s. I'm talking about the mid-1990s. It was incredible. Terrific little school. But stenciled across the front of the school as the school's motto was the phrase, if it's to be, it's up to me. No! No, you are not sovereign over the universe. You're not even sovereign over your universe. Your sphere of responsibility is Far smaller than that. And that's a good thing. That's a good thing. Um I uh two two passages I want us to just read read together. Come with me to First Thessalonians chapter four, verses nine through twelve. You're not going to like this paragraph if you believe that you're supposed to be a part of the solution to every problem you know about. You're not going to like this paragraph at all. Fair warning. Now concerning brotherly love. You have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout northern Greece, Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this and more. More? What is brotherly love's next step? Because that's what he's about to tell them. You've got this brotherly love thing pretty well in hand, commendably in hand. Now take this next step. Aspire to live quietly. And mind your own affairs and work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And I would add, have a calm and quiet soul. Mind your own affairs is the same thing he's saying in Psalm 131. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. And it's, it's, not, it's not just media scale and scope. Everything I see on the news that is a problem, is my problem. Ooh, there are not enough meds in a pharmacy to keep you intact. <laughs> and I'm not making fun of people who are using meds to help hang together. That's between you and your physician. But if every problem in the media that you encounter is your problem, you are a basket case. But it also works in personal life. If I am charged to live quietly and mind my own affairs, that has to mean, what does what disobedience to that look like? It looks like I'm trying to mind your affairs. <clears throat> I'm trying to live my life in your lane of responsibility. Now, we're accountable to one another and love for one another is a costly thing. I'll be talking about that Sunday morning, but the nucleus, the core, the stewardship that God has given you is your Christ-honoring life. Not Repairing the universe over which he is sovereign and you are not. Contain your attention. Philippians, we're we're, we're in the same neighborhood. Turn over to the left a couple of books. Philippians 4. Peace of God and the God of peace, these two paragraphs starting in 4 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Remember, we've talked about joy. Joy is that sense that everything that matters forever has been settled forever. If you are a child of God, your grounding in joy is found in your settled confidence that everything that matters forever has been settled forever. That's joy. Joy is not an emotional state. Joy is a confident belief framework that doesn't get rattled as though the biggest issues are still up for grabs because, child of God, they aren't. Let me go ahead and, let me just go all prophetic on you for a minute. Sarcastic. I'll tell you how it's going to play out for you. Assuming the Lord does not intervene by re-injecting himself in human history, which at one time in the future he will do. Setting that aside for a moment, when he comes around that interrupts our obedience, that's him exercising his prerogative. I long for the day that he does that. But assuming that day is still a ways out, I don't know, and you don't either. I said assuming. I didn't say arguing. Assuming. Here's how it's going to play out. You're going to have some remaining days on earth. Some are going to be okay, some are going to be awful. Then you're going to die, then you're going to be with Jesus forever. Woo, I'm a prophet. (laughs) And if you have different expectations than that, what planet are you living on, what Bible are you reading? Rejoice always. Again, I will say, rejoice What do you think his point is? What do you think he wants us to do? Rejoice, y'all are such students. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word reasonableness is your emotional equanimity. The fact that you're not veering all over the road all the time. Even keeledness is in view. The Lord is at hand. True 2,000 years ago, true today. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. That is to say, the peace of God which surpasses that peace which is attainable by understanding. That's what he means when he says the peace which surpasses understanding. I'll come back to that in a minute. Will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. See, we long for the peace that comes from understanding. I need to know what's going on. Tell me what's going on. Fill me in. Give me the details. Tell me what's going on. And we think there's peace to be had there. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need peace that comes from understanding. How woefully inadequate is that? We need peace that surpasses that peace which comes from understanding. I know enough. I know enough. I'm not ill informed. I'm up to speed. I know enough. But that is increasing my knowledge base is not my source of peace. Rejoicing in the Lord and remembering what he has accomplished for me and for all who follow him. Peace of God peace of God. Well, I heard they're, they're launching mortars out of Libya now. Oh, I don't doubt it. If the Libyans have got mortars, they're going to launch them. I'm not making light. People are dying. But I, I, mortars are being launched out of Libya, and I anticipate sleeping well tonight. Because the place where my joy lives Ooh, be careful. The place where my joy lives is inaccessible to shifting circumstances, and that means all of them. Brother Russell, something terrible could happen. Until you convince me that I can lose what Jesus has bought for me, you can't get to my joy because my joy is coming from what Jesus has bought for me and if I get beheaded in an accident with a semi-truck on the way home the night, you tell them at my funeral that I said that. Okay? So I'm not backing off that statement even as I see the cross beam from underneath the semi coming to take my head off. Bummer. Not, not, not anticipating it gleefully. All right. That's, that's the peace of, that's the peace of God, but, but, but watch this. Finally, brothers, he, he says on. <laughs> for those of you who are just soaking up the media all the time because you think you'll find more peace in being better informed, this paragraph is for you. Whatever is true. Well, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Keep reading. Whatever is honorable. Whoop, we just lost every media outlet you can name. Right, <laughs> left, and center. Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things beautiful things, joyful things, honorable things, truthful things. Not the muck of the week, whether that's neighborhood gossip or xnewsoutlet.com. Nothing but God's word and the joyful testimonies of his people satisfy the requirements of that paragraph. If you've got something else going on in your life that you're paying a great deal of attention to, hold it up against the measure of that paragraph of God's word and see if you should be paying much attention to it And remember, I do not occupy myself with things that are beyond my scale, too great, too marvelous for me. I'm just not going to occupy myself with that. That is not my stewardship. If I start trying to own the stewardship that is not mine, I am begging for anxiety. I am sabotaging my own soul quietude. So, curbed ambition plus controlled affection plus contained attention equals curbed anxiety. Because I have not, and I have not, and I have not, the three prohibitions, I have calmed and quieted my soul. Because in my little world, tilling my own little garden, Seeing to my own sphere of stewardship, I find that I have quite enough to occupy my healthy attention, quite enough to pursue with balanced passion. As my grandmother would say, I got enough to say grace over. A weaned child is different than a child that's still nursing. I've never nursed a child. I identify as a man. <laughs> because I, in fact, am one. But I have, I have, I have two grandchildren that are, uh, one turns four this weekend and one's about to be a year and a half. And I, I've, I'm, we're, we're blessed to have a very good relationship with our son and daughter-in-law and, and our grandkids. And a weaned, child wants what it wants. I mean, pardon me, an unweaned child has not yet learned, and it's okay, they've not yet learned to control anything about what they want. They want what they want, and they want it now! But as they come to be a weaned child, they're still very confident that mom is a very important source of what's going on in their life. Security and peace and provision and all that. Mama is mama. But they're no longer literally demanding and attaching. He doesn't say like a nursing child with his mother. That's a peaceful scene if it's going well for all concerned, for sure. But a weaned child can go over there and play for a bit. Look over his shoulder her shoulder from time to time and make sure mama's still okay. Like a weaned child. Don't you want the capacity to have a calm and quiet soul. Doesn't that matter? So again, I just invite you, and I'm gonna get to verse three in a minute. Consider what's going on in your own internal life regarding ambition, affection, and attention. And you consider for yourself, is there a relationship between what you wish for and don't have, ambition? What you need and don't have, affection. What you're paying attention to that in fact has nothing to do with you and attention. And is there some relationship? You know, if you're eating Taco Bell from the drive-thru every morning at 1.30 and you've got acid reflux all the time... Somebody somewhere ought to point out there might be a relationship. (laughs) Verse three, Israel, hope in the Lord. Often in the Psalms, it's best for us to think as God's New Testament people to remember that, that, that these references to Israel are not talking about the land of Palestine and the physical descendants of Abraham in terms of application. O oh, people of God. And again, for those of you who do theology, I'm not advocating for quote unquote replacement theology. Chase that rabbit some of the time. But if this is just about national Israel, then you and I are wasting our time because this isn't for us. O oh, people of God, hope in the Lord. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So one more time. Curb your ambitions. Aspire, aspire, please aspire. But control it. Keep it in check, keep it in balance. <laughs> yeah. My, uh, undergraduate single, my undergraduate GPA when I was single, I made two Bs for the whole four years I was in college. I graduated with a 3.985 in college. I was not married. And I do not have a single friend that I made during those four years to this day because I didn't make any. I intended to slay my undergraduate GPA. And I pulled it off. Those were not four happy years. I don't look back on those years fondly. Started seminary right right the next fall. Got married right as I started seminary. My seminary GPA is barely a B. I was married. (laughs) I look back on those years as some of the most joyful and incredible and amazing years of my life because I took my academic ambitions and put them in line with being the child of God and husband I needed to be during those years. I got way worse grades and a way better outcome. That's what I mean when I talk about curb.